So I, I grouped some of the questions together. <clears throat> In the gradual process of uprooting clinging, what is the interplay between discernment and having karma as our true property? And what are the best criteria for determining if someone is meditating skillfully or not? What are the best criteria for determining if progress is being made in meditation? So in terms of <coughs> the relationship between <coughs> developing the mind of non-clinging and the law of karma, there's an interesting teaching in which the Buddha describes the different ways people progress along the path. So that relates to the second question also. He described four ways of the journey unfolding. It can unfold slowly with a lot of difficulty. It can unfold slowly without a lot of difficulty. It can unfold quickly with a lot of difficulty or it can unfold quickly without a lot of difficulty. There are very few in the fourth category, <laughs> it seems. But I like that teaching because it takes it out of the realm of the personal. You know, how it unfolds for us is really a result of our past karma. You know, and either our insight is keen or it develops slowly, either we have a lot of unpleasant sensations or we don't. And that's just a karmic result. So instead of taking the challenges that arise in the course of our practice personally as if we're doing something wrong or, you know, if only I got it right, then it wouldn't be like that. Instead of all that self-assessment and self-judgment, we can relax and say, yeah, it's going to unfold according to its own law, and it may happen in one of these four ways, and it really doesn't matter. Because if we're walking in the right direction, and that's really a question of having a basic right view, a right understanding of what we're doing. If we have this basic right understanding or right view, we're walking in the right direction, and we keep on walking, the end result is inevitable. It will inevitably end in awakening. Just like any journey, if we know where we're going and we keep going, we'll reach the goal. And so this is all by way of saying uh, to relax in however your practice is unfolding for you. Right? That all of these ways uh, are viable, are viable ways of practice. And it can really help to alleviate so much of the self-judging and the self-assessment that can happen. I mean, what is the criterion for whether we're practicing correctly? It's very simple. You know, it's, I don't know a lot about computers, but as I understand it, it's, so the language is all written in one and zero. You know, it's just sequences of one and zero that program everything the computer does. Well, in meditation, 
It's either mindfulness or not mindfulness. That's all. So it's not about what's happening. It's not about the particular experience you're having. In any moment, if you want to know whether you're practicing correctly, simply ask yourself, am I being mindful of what's arising in this moment? And you're either being mindful or you're not. Now, the tricky part is when you're not and you become aware that you're not being mindful, don't get lost in further non-mindfulness by being judgmental about the fact that you've been lost. We all get lost. So we're going along mindful, 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 not mindful for however long. Then we wake up, we're mindful again. That's the only criterion that you need uh, to consider. So it's really simple. In terms of progress along the path, it can really be measured by the strength and the intensity of the various defilements. If they are weakening over time, not in the course of one sitting and not in the course of one retreat, but as we're committed to our Dharma practice, if, we, if we're practicing over years, and we see that greed is increasing, and <laughs> hatred is increasing, we're on the wrong path. So again, it's a, very, it's a very straightforward way of assessing how we're doing. And it's worth, I think, watching this. You know, really to pay attention to our minds. Is there less greed? Is there less hatred and anger? Are we awake more? And if we are, if we can see in a gradual way, it's not, it's not sudden and huge, but it's a gradual deepening, gradual lessening of the defilements. If you see that, then I think you can have real confidence in your practice, that the practice is working, that you are progressing along the path. You know, and the Buddha described it uh, really beautifully. He said, the growth or development of the practice is like an ocean floor gradually sloping to the depths. So it's not about a sudden drop-off. It's just, you know, step by step, the forces of these defilements get weaker. Um, so it's really straightforward. Thoughts on working with procrastination more in regards to daily life practice. Also, how to cultivate discipline and restraint without judgment. I know that we talked a little bit one-on-one in some of the interviews about cowboy dharma, but did I discuss it in the hall? No, okay. How to work with procrastination. And that's just... It could be anything, right? In this particular question, that's, that's the pattern that was mentioned. You know, in daily life practice, we keep putting it off. But it could be any pattern that is uh, deeply habituated in us that we see is not so skillful, it's not so helpful. And we've tried all the usual, you know, be mindful and noted and 
this and that. When everything fails, this is when cowboy dharma comes into play. Now, cowboy dharma is when we see a pattern that we've seen a million times. Right? So it's not a question of not seeing. It's not a question of denial or suppression. It comes up. We've seen it. We're really familiar with it. So then we keep an eye out for the very first arising of the thought. So in this case, oh, I'll sit later. Right? Or whatever thought the procrastination you know, is taking, whatever form it's taking. So as soon as that thought comes up into the mind, you have to... Now the trick to doing this, actually in in Switzerland, I I was teaching this, and there was one Swiss guy who really liked this method. So he came in, but he added a little something to it. He said, you know, I've been doing that with some of these patterns and defilements. <laughs> cool off the gun for the next <laughs> for the next shot. It actually ties into the next question. You know, the same how to cultivate discipline and restraint without judgment. First, the key to the cowboy dharma or cowgirl dharma is uh, doing it with a sense of humor. You know, it's, it's not actually that you have a gun and are killing anything. It's more like an amusement park, you know, where you're just shooting at the ducks going by or something. So you want to do this with a sense of humor. And that's what actually enables you to free yourself from that pattern. So how does one practice restraint or discipline without judgment. In many Dharma circles, and especially in the Vipassana scene, there's a lot of emphasis, rightfully so, on yes. Saying yes to experience. Acceptance, allowing, opening to, and we've heard those words many, many times. And it's really what the practice is about in a lot of ways. We want to open to and accept and allow whatever's arising. But there's an equally important place for a no. Just as we have to cultivate yes to experience, we have to cultivate a wise no to experience to mental states that are unskillful. No, I'll pass on this. No, this isn't a good idea. And that's <laughs> the cowboy diamond's kind of ex- an expression of the no. And no, this is, this is not going anyplace. It's not helpful. And so just in terms of relating this to your life or to, to life experience, you know, it's how parents are with the child. If, if parents said yes to everything a little kid wanted to do, the kid would turn into a monster. You know, there would be no sense of discernment or what's, what's wise, what's not wise, what's harmful, what's not harmful. Very often, there has to be a loving, compassionate no. 
this is not good, this is not helpful. The problem is that we often do that, not particularly as parents, but as meditators, we often do it with judgment. Oh, I'm so bad for this arising, you know, because this is arising, or we do it with aversion to what's arising. That's not a skillful no. The no has to be the wise one of restraint, seeing this is not going anyplace, this is not helpful. Can I let it go? The key to doing this skillfully, or in a way that's effective, is practicing seeing the unhelpful patterns, whatever they may be, the ones that are very repetitive, you know, that come again and again and we get seduced by again and again, to catch them quickly. If we see them when they're arising, just as they're arising, that first thought in the mind, and then either with our pop gun or just with a loving no in the mind, No, I'm not going to do that. If we can catch it right at the beginning, then it's quite easy, actually, to let it go. If we don't catch it, you know, and we get really caught up in it for some time, then it has more strength. And then it's a little bit harder to extricate ourselves. Uh, So I would just suggest really keeping alert for the patterns, you know, and seeing them when they arise. And try. <laughs> it actually, your meditation can get to be a lot of fun when you don't take these patterns so seriously. I'll just, uh, just a further thought on it. So one of the common patterns, this is, as well as procrastination, a very common pattern for many people is the judging mind. You know, we judge ourselves, we judge others. So sometimes I'll recommend to people, just start counting the judgments in the course of a day. Judgment one, judgment two, judgment 500, (laughs) judgment 10,000. What happens in most people's minds is what just happened here. Start laughing. You know, we start smiling at our own minds because it is so ridiculous. And as soon as you can smile at the judgment or whatever the pattern may be, in that moment of being able to smile at it, we're no longer caught. It's like seeing the emptiness of it. But with judgment or any other unwholesome pattern, they are fed in two ways. They are fed by believing it. You know, we get, we get caught by believing what it's saying. Or they're fed by our aversion to it. So if judgment comes and we have aversion to the judgment, that's making it as strong as believing it. That's why, whether it's cowboy dharma or counting them or anything that helps you see the emptiness, the transparency, even the humor of these ridiculous patterns arising again and again. And again, ridiculous with a sense of humor, not with a sense of judgment. 
it just lightens the whole thing and then they arise and they pass away and they really don't have much of an effect on our minds. There's a, there's a wonderful line from, this, this was an, an anonymous samurai poem, which I came across someplace years ago. And one of the lines in this poem was, I make my mind my friend. And I thought, what a great description of meditation. You know, if, if, if you did nothing else in the time that you're here except to make your mind your friend, that would be huge. You know, and so then we can just relax with a friendly attitude toward whatever is arising and discerning. Is this something to cultivate? Is it something to let go? But it's all done in a very balanced way. Okay, so actually this question in a way is related. It says, how to strengthen equanimity in Vipassana meditation. Well, first, just to understand really what equanimity means. And the word, I mean, there are many ways to describe that mind state, but the word that I like, I think, the most as a description is impartiality. Because to me, impartiality just suggests a great spaciousness of mind, a great openness of mind, where we're not picking and choosing, and we're just seeing. We're just seeing what's arising without the reactivity of clinging, a desire, or aversion. So in that way, it's sort of like space. So then the question is, how do we cultivate this in our practice? One way, of course, is simply remembering to incline the mind towards equanimity. This is is an essential part of our path. It's one of the factors, it's the last of the factors of enlightenment, of the seven factors. It's intimately connected with wisdom. And so as you're sitting, you might just remind yourself, call that quality to mind frequently. You know, it's almost like you could check, is my mind equanimous now or not? Is it reactive? So we start to highlight its importance. A few specific, um, could say, reflections or practices to help the mind drop into the space of equanimity is by reminding ourselves or practicing the letting go of attachment. Because attachment is is just the opposite. And the the few examples of ways of letting go of attachment, one I'm sure you're very familiar with, you know, Ajahn Chah's well-known example of holding up a cup and asking his students, you know, how should you relate to the cup with wisdom? said you should relate to it as if it's already broken. Because when we can relate to the cup as if it's already broken, we can use it, we can take care of it, but we're not attached to it. We don't think that it's going to last forever. It acknowledges the truth of change. 
So in that lack of attachment to the cup, to anything that arises, the lack of attachment forces equanimity. Then we're just with things as they are, but without that force of grasping. Another way of developing equanimity, which is particularly uh, important in the practice, has, has tremendous relevance. It was something that, it was my first deep connection to Eastern philosophy, really. I was a, I was a freshman in college, and I was taking a course in in Eastern Asian philosophy. And we were reading the Bhagavad Gita. And I, did, I was a freshman in college. I didn't know anything you know, about any of this. But there was one line in the Bhagavad Gita, which even <laughs> you know, in that state of complete innocence about it all, somehow, I don't know, maybe this was a past life <laughs> happening, this one line resonated so deeply for me and I think it, in one, in one way, it was the seed you know, of uh, my connection to the Dharma. It said, act without attachment to the fruit of the action. That was, that was the line that just resonated so deeply. We can act, we can do, we can engage, but can we do it without attachment to the outcome? just for a moment reflect on what that attitude, how that attitude would affect your meditation. I mean, for most of us, very often we are practicing with an attachment to an outcome, even within the course of one sitting. You know, we come in and sit, and very often there's just some idea, some expectation of wanting calm, wanting concentration, wanting this or that. That's just expectation. That's just attachment to outcome. And of course it's a setup for disappointment because the outcome is, for the most part, out of our control. So many different factors you know, come into play in terms of what the result will be. If we could come in to our practice or spend the whole day without attachment to the outcome, then it's like we settle back into the moment, surrendering to the Dharma, letting it unfold as it will. Don't confuse this with not having aspirations. Because aspiration and expectation are two very different things. Aspiration is setting the direction. Yes, we have the aspiration to free our minds from suffering, to free our minds from greed and hatred and delusion. That's the aspiration. So that's, that's necessary. The expectation is when we have an attachment to it unfolding in a particular way. And that's what causes so much dukkha for people in their practice. Does this seem clear? Expectation, aspiration, not being attached to outcome. Really, really take it in because it will make 
your practice so much more relaxed in a good way. We just settle back and it unfolds as it does. One last teaching which I like a lot from uh, the Dalai Lama just around this issue. He said, the true measure of an action is not its success or failure, but the motivation behind it. And I think that's such a powerful reminder. We are so used to measuring our actions and what we do in the world, what we do in meditation, according to some notion of it being successful or not. Is it a success? Is it a failure? And His Holiness is saying, that's not the measure, that's not the true measure of the value of the action. The true measure is the motivation behind it. So again, it it reminds us, if our motivation is good, we have the aspiration to be mindful, we have the aspiration to purify our minds, then we just surrender to all the ups and downs of our experience. Is the Tathagata, Gautama Buddha, now completely dissolved? Or when we pray to the Buddha, is there an energy residing somewhere that is, was Buddha, that is reachable? Have you ever been able to talk with him, her? To talk with him or her. I think that's what it says. I, I like that question because it points to something that is so key, so central to the deepest understanding of the Dharma and his teachings. You know, at one point there's a story of a monk who was so enamored of the form of the Buddha that he would always just, you know, be close to the Buddha and in some way be adoring or worshipful, you know, of the form of the Buddha. He wanted to be close. And at a certain point the Buddha reprimanded him. He said, you could look at this form for a hundred years and you wouldn't see the Buddha. Those who see the Dharma, those who understand the Dharma, see the Buddha. So even though we use the term Buddha and think of that historical person, perhaps, you know, and then wonder, well, what happened after his death? And is he someplace that we can connect with or you know, relate to as some kind of being existing someplace? That's not the Buddha. In any form is not the Buddha. The Dharma, when we see the Dharma, that's the Buddha. There's one series of discourses which is very powerful. And it basically is similar. It revolves around a question uh, of how the Buddha is to be considered after his death. 
you know, he exists, he doesn't exist, he both exists and doesn't exist, he neither exists nor doesn't exist, you know, the, the tip, typical Indian phil- philosophical framework. And the Buddha leads him, leads this monk, just through a series of questions, asking about all the aggregates, you know, are they impermanent? Is what's impermanent satisfying or unsatisfying? Is what's satisfying, unsatisfying, impermanent can be considered self or not? And he goes through this, all of the aggregates in this way. And then he says at the very end, it's it's like the punchline of the sutta, which is very powerful. He says, if the Buddha, if the Tathagata, is not to be found in this very life, what can one say about him after his death? Right? But it's very hard to understand that the Tathagata, or the self, is not to be found in this very life. That's a concept that the mind creates based on a certain form. But when we see the emptiness, the emptiness of self of all the aggregates, and see, yes, the self, the Tathagata, the Buddha, is not to be found even now in this life, then the question of what happens after death is it's not, a, it's not a relevant question. And so what's left in understanding the Buddha is not to be found in this very life, the self is not to be found in this very life, what's left is the Dharma, it's the law, it's just the truth of phenomena happening. And when we see that, then we're really seeing the Buddha. And that the whole point of the practice is to connect with that. Right? So in that way, we are connecting with the Buddha when we understand the Dharma in ourselves. Could you share your wisdom about bouts of staleness in your lifelong practice? Keeping the practice fresh can be challenging at times. And then, is it really necessary to force oneself to sleep for only three or four hours, or to stay up until very late at night to practice, as we hear in the stories about your retreats with various Asian teachers? Can one still make progress and get enlightened when sleeping seven or eight hours a night? (laughs) I mean, both of these questions. really are about understanding right effort. And understanding right effort is itself a lifelong practice because there are so many subtleties. First, even to understanding what effort means and then how we can apply it wisely. And that changes according to the circumstances. So there's no one formula that says, yes, you have to do it this way. It very much depends on what's happening at a particular time. So to answer specifically some of the questions, as with you, there were many times in my practice 
where things got stale. You know, it just felt like I was just going over the same ground again and again and again. Times when the body felt really clogged and tight. So one of these times, which really stands out even after all these years, this was during my practice time. One was in India, one time when I was in Burma. In one of these times when I was just slogging away, you know, it felt like nothing was happening, getting discouraged. So I just, I gave myself a little talking to. I said, Joseph, just sit and walk. Just sit and walk. Surrender to the Dharma. Let the Dharma take care of it. My job is just to sit and walk. And that took, it just took a big burden. Okay, I knew what I had to do. And then I just surrendered to however things were. And it helped a lot because I just stopped judging or assessing or being attached to outcome. I was doing my part. And sure enough, I just sat and walked and sat and walked and sat and walked. And at a certain point, things started to feel like they were moving again, more energy, you know, more insight. So sometimes it's that simple. We just, we just have to come back to the basic form of the practice, and that can sustain us you know, through the difficult times. Sometimes we have to adjust the intensity or the quality of our effort. So this was a situation that happened in Burma. Again, I was going through a period of, it was hard. Uh, the body wasn't comfortable and I was putting out a, I was putting out a lot of effort. It was, that was one of those times when I was not sleeping much and I was, I was really pushing myself, but it just felt stuck. So at that point, uh, that was when I was mostly uh, sitting cross-legged. So at one point, I just decided, I'm going to just alternate. I'm going to sit once cross-legged, once in a chair. Once cross-legged, once in a chair. And it was amazing. All I really needed at that time was just that, that much of relaxing the body, of stopping to push myself so hard. And just by giving myself that kind of more easeful posture in the sitting, it was amazing. The whole thing started to unfold. And I saw that it was that relaxing at that point that was really helpful. That's what was needed. That was the adjustment of the effort. Sometimes there is a lot of energy You know, there are times in our practice when the mind is very alert, very energetic. We're really seeing a lot. At those times, it might be the wise thing to stay up late, to sleep only a few hours a night. So that's not something to shy away from. If that's what's happening naturally in your practice, it's not something you have to push for, but it's worth responding to when it's happening. Right? Rather than just going along out of habit, oh, it's time to go to sleep, even if one really isn't tired. Because there are times in the practice where 
a few hours of sleep is just enough. We don't really need any more. And by continuing the practice, you know, late into the night or very early in the morning, it really, it really lends a certain kind of momentum. But it's doing that when the conditions are right for doing it. It's not doing it out of a should or forcing oneself. And so that's why I say right effort is an art. You know, we need to see when to relax, when to really extend our limits, uh, and to play with that. You know, so you begin to learn about your own process. I mean, there were some times in my practice, and some of you may be experiencing this, uh, sitting in the middle of the night, you know, like, I don't know, in the hours between midnight and four or something. It is a magical time to sit. You know, it's like all the vibrations of this part of the world just quiet down. And usually one is alone, <laughs> or you know, not, not many others are joining you at that time. Uh, but it can, or you might be sitting in your room. It can be a wonderful time to practice. So again, if the energy is there for it, I would encourage it. And if it's not, I wouldn't force it. Is serious attachment to meditation considered a hindrance? (laughs) There's a short answer to this question. Uh, And it's the title of, it's one of the last suttas, discourses in the Middle End Sayings. And the title of the discourse is One Fortunate Attachment. (laughs) And so, the attachment to practicing. You could say attachment to the Dharma, to walking on the path. That's one fortunate attachment because it will lead us on to when we let go of even that. You know, and you're probably familiar with the, the classical image of the Eightfold Path as a raft to cross a river. Well, when you're in the middle of the river, it's not a bad idea to be attached to the raft. But when you get to the other shore, you don't, you don't carry it on your head. It's served its purpose, and so you let it go. And so that, I think that's the way to really understand. Actually, I don't know where it is in this pile, but there was a related question about, somewhat related, if one is discerning or seeing impermanence, then what does that, uh, how does that relate to having a committed relationship? So how does that relate to commitment uh, if we're just seeing everything changing and understanding changes the nature of things? These two are not contradictory, contradictory at all. And we can understand the application of it in our relationship life 
in the same way we understand our commitment to Dharma practice. So even though conditions are changing all the time, we're committed to staying there through the changes. So we're not thinking our practice always has to be this way because that's not possible. It is going to change. In the same way in relationships, if you go into a relationship with the idea for the other person, you stay this way. (laughs) It's clearly not going to work. But if we're open to the commitment to being with that person, just as we can have a commitment to our practice, if we have a commitment to being there for the changes, so that really is the basis for a stable relationship. And it's not to say that it always works out perfectly, because as we know, it doesn't. And sometimes it may be necessary you know, to end the relationship. But I think this basic understanding that it's a commitment not to things staying the, sa- the same way, but a commitment to staying there with the whole process of change. And it's, it's the same thing, whether it's for our practice or relationship or anything else in our lives. And these were a few questions about concentration. What is the different in what difference in one instant between a concentrated mind and a mindful mind? Maybe in terms of uh, object and mind. In my practice, I get confused about the distinction between right mindfulness and right concentration. They seem to work together like a Mobius strip. Is this right view? How much concentration or stillness does one need to effectively do vipassana? Should one train in jhana? Okay, so it's just to kind of understand how concentration and mindfulness work together. Concentration, and this is uh, described in the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, concentration is a common factor of mind, which means it's the factor of one-pointedness, which means it's actually present in every moment. Because if there were no (coughs) one-pointedness at all, the mind wouldn't be connecting with the object. There has to be some minimal amount of one-pointedness to actually make contact with the object. But the one-pointedness may be quite weak. There may just be the minimum amount necessary to connect with and know what's happening. One of the things that strengthens this factor of one-pointedness or concentration is continuity of mindfulness. So there are two different factors. One-pointedness is that quality of mind that keeps the mind steady, you know, unwavering. And the example used to describe it is like a candle uh, flame in a windless place. Right? So the flame just stays steady. It's not, it's not flickering. That's one-pointedness. Mindfulness remembers what the object is. It keeps the object in mind. So it's not just kind of a 
It's not just an unknowing one-pointedness. You know, where the mind's steady, but we're not really aware of what the object is. We're not alert. We're not mindful. For example, when we're lost in a thought, there's some one-pointedness there. Because if somebody asked you, what are you thinking? You would be able to tell them. There's some level of connection. But when we're lost in a thought, there's no mindfulness. At that moment, we don't remember that we're thinking. We're lost in it. So it's the continuity of mindfulness which strengthens the concentration. The more moments of mindfulness that we have, the concentration gets stronger and stronger, which is why there's so much emphasis, and I want to uh, urge you, there's so much emphasis on continuity of practice. And continuity really means that we settle back into the moment (coughs) with mindfulness as best we can from the moment we get up in the morning till the moment we fall asleep. We don't privilege one activity over another. That's really what continuity means. And so one little mantra, which I've mentioned to a few of you in interviews, just to remind yourself of this, as you go through the day, remind yourself each step. That's the mantra. Each step. So we're really, and each step just represents each everything, each reaching, each touching. But so often, and this goes back to the procrastination question, even on retreat here in practice, the mind has so many strategies for putting off really being attentive, being mindful. Oh, you get up from a sitting and you're going to the walking. And when I get to the walking, then I'll really be carefully mindful again. Well, what happened, you know, from the moment that you begin standing up, even just moving you know, changing your posture, the act of standing. And each step as you leave the hall, each step as you walk down the corridor, that can be as mindful as what you're doing in the sitting. And when you practice this continuity, then the concentration gets strong. When there are gaps, a lot of gaps in the mindfulness, then the concentration stays weak. So there's a little attitude check here. There's a huge misconception about continuous mindfulness just feeling like an unbearable burden. Oh my God, how could I possibly be mindful so continuously? You know, and we interpret it as taking all of this effort that's way beyond us. I need these breaks. Okay, we'll do a little experiment. 
So if you just move your arm now and feel it move. Can you feel it move? How much effort does that take? <laughs> it's effortless. When we're present, it's not that being mindful is such a burden. It actually is a relief because we don't have the tension of either toppling forward, you know, being ahead of ourselves energetically, and we don't weary ourselves with being so lost in our, our mental proliferation. We just settle back in the most relaxed, easeful way, feeling what's going on. And the language here is really helpful because a lot of the meditation language is about watching. Watch, notice, observe, right? That's, that's a lot of the language that's used. But that's not helpful language because the very language implies a duality. It, it implies, oh, I'm up here someplace and I have to keep looking at what's happening. That's what's tiring. You know, because we're always trying to track what's happening. If instead of that watching language to yourself, you use feeling language, okay, can I feel the movement? Well, then it's not a dualistic mindfulness. Then we're actually just in the body, one with it. We're feeling it as it's happening. It's completely easeful. So can you go through the day practicing in as continuous a way as possible, being relaxed back in the body, just feeling the movement. And with the body as the foundation of your mindfulness, then it's easier to become aware of thoughts and mind states, everything else that arises. So this is the way to develop concentration. And that continuity of mindfulness develops the concentration necessary for awakening. I really, I, I can't emphasize enough, this is really the secret to the practice. It's the key to the practice. Um, so I'd really encourage you to explore the practice of this continuity and the easefulness of it, right? So we're not tightening, we're not watching every moment. We're just relaxed into the moment, feeling it. Okay, wondering about uh, sutta references that teach or inspire forgiveness. Uh, I know of the Dhamma Pada story uh, that starts, he beat me, he robbed me, you know, and as long as we, uh, I can't remember the exact verse, but it's, as long as we harbor such thoughts, the mind is never at peace. Are there any others that really speak, you know, to this uh, question of forgiveness? Is there a poly term for it? Um, for the ways we use the formal forgiveness phrases, where do these phrases come from in the canon? Uh, so I didn't 
really know the answer to this question, but I asked the great guru in the sky, Mr. Google, <laughs> and Mr. Google knows everything. <laughs> I mean, it's really quite amazing. <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> it came up with some sutta references <laughs> for forgiveness. <laughs> it's quite amazing. <laughs> so I'll just read that this, is, this was one reference anyway. Uh, and it came up with the Pali word for it. <laughs> so this is from uh, the suttas, the Anguttara and Nikaya, uh, that big collection of the numerical discourses. It has a great opening line. These two are fools. <laughs> Which two? The one who doesn't see his or her transgression, mistakes, as transgressions, and the one who doesn't rightfully pardon another who has confessed his or her transgressions. These two are fools. These two are wise. Which two? The one who sees his or her transgression as a transgression and the one who rightfully pardons, forgives another one who has confessed his or her transgression. And so... And then it, it went on to say the Pali word for forgiveness, uh, it's kama spelled K A, transliterated in English, K-H-A-M-A. So that's different than kama as, as karma. And it's interesting, this is uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu. This was a writing that he had done. He said that the Pali word kama means the earth. You know, and... So forgiveness is that quality of the mind that is like the earth, non-reactive and unperturbed. You know, that is, that is accepting in that way. And that in that attitude of forgiveness, it's the decision not to retaliate, you know, not, not to strike back out of anger or resentment, and I think the way to come to this understanding in our practice is to really be quite attuned to how it feels when we hold on to our resentment, when we hold on to our anger. Who is suffering? We are the ones who are suffering. And we are holding that hot burning coal. Forgiveness does not mean condoning an action. You know, it's, it's recognizing you know, people do harmful things, and we can recognize this, and have an appropriate response even, but can we do it with our own heart that's free of the burning, that's free of the resentment, that's free of you know, the wanting some kind of revenge or retaliation? And then this was another verse from the Dhammapada. People who recognize their own mistakes and change their ways illumine the world like the moon when freed from a cloud. And so recognizing our mistakes and changing our ways refers both to people who are doing harmful actions, but also to ourselves 
if we're holding on you know, to unskillful mind states in response to that. So there are, there, are, there are different ways, you know, to cultivate this quality of forgiveness, which is a really beautiful quality. Actually, the Dalai Lama had, as so often, he had, he had some beautiful words to this. I forget, it was in response to some question. Maybe it was, you know, do you ever get angry or something like that. And he said... I do get angry sometimes, but deep in my heart, I don't hold a grudge against anyone. You know, and I, I really like that because it acknowledges, yeah, we, we can have, you know, reactions when, when people do perhaps harmful things. But even though we may have these immediate reactions in the mind, what's, what's the deepest place in our heart? Are we harboring the resentment? Or can we really come to that place that deep in my heart, I don't hold a grudge against anyone. May everyone be happy. And one one of the examples of this, which is very powerful and one of the most challenging practices, and this will maybe end on this, on this note, it was it was in the context of right speech, but it was really about right listening. And in this one sutta, in one discourse, the Buddha he says, somebody may speak to you untruthfully, filled with hatred, with an intent to harm, and he goes on. I mean, there's, there's a whole list of these unskillful ways people may speak to us. And then he goes on to say, but regardless of how people are speaking to us, you know, lying <laughs> angrily with an intent to harm, regardless of how people speak to us, we should abide with a mind, with a heart of loving kindness, compassionate for their welfare. So that's challenging. <laughs> Just imagine somebody coming up to you, maybe somebody close to you, you know, they're lying to you (laughs) and they're harming you. They have an intent to harm. Okay, can we take a deep breath and drop underneath the behavior to see the suffering that's at the bottom of that behavior and the harm they're causing themselves by it can we drop underneath the activity? And when we can, then there's the possibility of abiding with a heart of love and kindness, compassionate for their welfare. You know, so that's, that would be a direct application or manifestation of forgiveness in our lives. You know, we're not holding on to the reaction, to our own reaction. We're getting to something more fundamental. Okay, there, there were many more, but save them for another time. So let's just sit for a few minutes. <clears throat> 